0: this is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at PurdueGlobal.edu.
2: Welcome to How Stuff Works Now. I'm your host, Lauren Vogelbaum, a researcher and writer here at How Stuff Works. Every week, I'm bringing you three stories from our team about the weird and wondrous developments we've seen in science, technology, and culture. This week, the U.S. government reported that its nuclear defense technology still involves eight-inch floppy disks. And uh, speaking of rockets, Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos thinks that the key to saving the planet is making space accessible to small businesses and also moving all of our heavy industry out there. But first, Holly Fry, co-host of a little podcast you might have heard of called Stuff You Missed in History Class brings us the definitive evidence that the blade of one of King Tut's ceremonial daggers actually came from outer space. And furthermore, that it was made here on Earth, not, in Holly's words, delivered to him intact by some very artistic alien race.
1: 14th century BCE ruler, King Tutankhamun, or King Tut, as he's often referred to in the West, is the Egyptian royal that people like you and me are most familiar with. And that's because his tomb was found mostly intact in 1922 by archaeologist Howard Carter. And it's been a treasure trove of historical discovery ever since. Egyptian royals, as you may know, were buried with lots of stuff. The latest revelation related to the artifacts in Tut's tomb, which were published recently in Meteoritics and Planetary Science, centers around a dagger. And this particular item was found in the wrappings of Tut's mummified body. It was placed over his right thigh. And while the dagger has a really beautifully detailed sheath of gold, the composition of the blade has been debated for decades. And now, thanks to a joint effort from Milan Polytechnic, Pisa University, and the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, we know what that blade is made from, and it's meteoric iron. That's right, metal from space. The research team, led by the paper's lead writer, Daniela Comelli, used portable X-ray fluorescence spectrometry to analyze the composition of the dagger. The results? The metal of the blade is almost 11% nickel, a very clear indicator of meteoric iron. For comparison, quarried iron has a roughly 4% nickel composition. The scientists also found cobalt traces, and that serves as further confirmation of its meteoric origin. Okay, don't get too excited or start worshiping Tut as your new alien god just yet. While this data is incredibly cool and it gives us insight into Egypt's scientific and cultural history, it's actually pretty common for ancient ceremonial iron objects to be made from materials that had extraterrestrial pedigrees. The metal workers of ancient Egypt likely selected the meteoric iron because they attributed value just financially or even divine significance to it due to its heavenly origin. Comelli and her team actually used the compositional data of the blade's metal to identify the very meteorite that's the most likely source of the dagger's materials. And that meteorite is an octahedrite fragment called Karga, and it was found 16 years ago at the seaport of Mersa Matra. Of the known meteorites in a 2,000-kilometer radius around the Red Sea that they studied, only that one meteorite fragment has a composition that matches the blade found buried with King Tut.
2: Next up, tech Stuff host Jonathan Strickland explained some odd news from the United States Government Accountability Office. Our entire nuclear arsenal is in the control of computer systems that haven't been updated in
0: half of a century. On May 25th, 2016, the U.S. Government Accountability Office released a report about the state of technology in various departments within the U.S. government. The result was pretty shocking. Multiple agencies rely heavily on equipment that is extremely out of date. The line in the report that got the most attention was this one. The Department of Defense uses 8-inch floppy disks in a legacy system that coordinates the operational functions of the nation's nuclear forces. For those of you old enough to remember floppy disks, you know this is seriously ancient tech. The DoD uses an IBM Series 1 computer, which first became available in 1976. According to the report, that's not even the oldest tech in the department. The DoD itself says that the age of its system is 53 years. That dates back to the year President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. Given that consumers are told to expect that their computers will need replacing every three to five years, this sounds pretty unbelievable. So what gives? Why are such critical systems running on unsupported hardware? For one thing, these systems are unique. You can't just pop over to the local computer store and buy a copy of MS nukes. Legacy systems are difficult to update. It often requires creating new programming from scratch on newer computer systems in different computer languages. This is time consuming and expensive. If you can keep your old legacy hardware and software working, It's tempting to do so. But the flip side is that the equipment and software you depend upon may go obsolete. Eventually, you may find it impossible to replace a worn-out piece of equipment simply because no companies are producing new versions of it. And it's hard to find people who know how to maintain code in computer languages that haven't been used in decades. Department of Defense representatives say that they intend to upgrade many of its computer systems by the end of fiscal year 2017. That includes portable and desktop terminals, as well as data storage. No more floppy disks. That's good news. But the Government Accountability Office report stresses that more needs to be done across other agencies, such as the Treasury Department. The equipment, software, and even computer languages running many critical systems are obsolete, and there are no rules in place to require agencies to identify outdated systems that need an upgrade.
2: Finally today, I've got the story of why Jeff Bezos wants to see Earth rezoned as residential and light industrial only, and how he thinks private space companies like his own Blue Origin can help make that happen. Jeff Bezos did an interview at Code Conference 2016. It's a sort of who's who of the tech business sector. And this year featured interviews with industry heavies like Elon Musk and Bill and Melinda Gates and Sheryl Sandberg on topics ranging from artificial intelligence research to artificial meat startups. Bezos discussed... Well, lots of things, and we'll put a link to the hour-plus-long interview in this video's description. But the part that caught our attention, being the specific type of nerds that we are, was when he spoke about his rocket manufacturing and spaceflight company, Blue Origin, and the future of business in space! Bezos says that he wants the space industry to be open to upcoming entrepreneurs the same way that the internet industry is open to startups today. Part of the reason is his genuine excitement about space exploration, and his frustration that the government-run programs like NASA have been, by some measures, in productive decline since the heyday of the space race. But the other part of his reasoning? He says that space will save the world. Bezos discussed how pollution and energy drain from heavy industry are starting to put limits on our society. Uh, how many people our planet can support, and what their quality of life can be. Here's my favorite cheeky quote from the interview.
0: We know about the solar system now. We have sent robotic probes all over the solar system. Let me assure you, this is the best planet.
2: His answer to saving the world? Moving heavy industry off Earth and powering it with solar energy, which would be more efficient than solar systems here on Earth. That way, he says, we can devote our resources and efforts to bringing the developing world up to the increasing speed of the developed world. It's a lovely and lofty goal. Because as of right now, as Bezos admits, it's way too expensive to do stuff in space. Although the thriving private space industry has helped over the past decade to drop the cost of sending stuff up there from $10,000 per pound to $1,000 or less, there are so many other factors. No one knows how an increased number of rocket launches will impact the energy industry and the environment. We're still researching how to protect squishy, delicate humans from the rigors and dangers of space. Asteroid mining is still in the concept stage, and the infrastructure necessary to make it easy for a person to start a space company is far vaster and more potentially explosive than the infrastructure involved in the internet. But as Bezos said, creating that infrastructure from reusable rockets to microgravity safety measures could save us all. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Subscribe now for more of the latest and strangest science news. And send us links to anything you'd like to hear us cover. Plus, any suggestions you have for surrealist art that we should check out. Let's get weird. Shoot us an email at nowpodcast at howstuffworks.com. It actually works now, I promise. And to get access to thousands of other stories like these, check out our home planet, now.howstuffworks.com.
0: Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit livenation.com slash concertweek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.
1: Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh?
0: Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves so we could go surfing. I oh <laughs> ah,
1: love that. A redwood forest would be cool.